Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Today we'll be looking at the well-known story of uh, the flood. We often call it the story of Noah's ark. Uh, though you know Noah and his ark is not the main point of the story, though it is a great important point. It's all together. It is about the flood. We're going to be looking at Genesis 6, verse 5, through the end of 7. We will not get through the whole story because there's a lot here. We're going to be splitting this up into actually, I believe, three sermons is my goal for the whole story of Noah. Flood, two sermons, and then after the flood for a sermon. So you can come back and hear the rest. But today, wiping away wickedness, judgment, and salvation. From Genesis 6, 5 through the end of chapter 7. Here in Genesis chapter 6, we see quickly that things are getting out of hand. We've been in Genesis, so if you've been here or you've read the Bible or you've been in church, you know the story. It begins really good. God makes the world in Genesis 1 and 2, and every time he looks at the world, what does he say? He saw it and it was good. And then as we saw, quickly things begin to degrade and are corrupted. Through sin, Adam and Eve choose to sin and rebel against God's one rule. As I joke with the kids all the time, wouldn't it be nice to only have one rule you know, in your house at school? God only had one rule for them, and still they rebelled. And from that came the curse and sin. And the next chapter, in the, in one, in the first family on earth, we already see murder, killing your own brother. Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy and envy. And then as Pastor preached about last week, through chapter 5, we see that that trend continues. We see the line of Cain turns into Lamech, who writes the first song that we see here in the Bible, and he writes a song boasting about his murder, about murdering people, for just some petty revenge. Because I was a little bit offended, I killed this, this, this young man, and look how awesome I am. We see the corruption and the wickedness of the world through many generations. And what comes into the world through this, as God promised Adam and Eve, sin brings death. And as Pastor Ryan preached about last week, right? You go through the generations, and died, 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 died. There's death and death and death. And we come to Genesis chapter 6. The world has been corrupted. The wickedness of mankind is the ignition of this story. Remember, God's command to Adam and Eve, what did he tell them in Genesis chapter 1 and 2? Uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And yet, what now fills the earth? Humans, yes, but with them, wickedness and corruption. Their descendants, Adam and Eve's descendants, do indeed multiply greatly and fill the earth, but instead of filling it with a godly dominion, with God's image, they fill it with destruction and corruption. And this is the way of sinful mankind. We always bring our wickedness with us. There's a lot of stories, movies, books about this, but it's a, it's a classic theme, right? Uh, where some group or people isolate themselves from the outside world, but yet somehow evil still finds a way in. 
Because everywhere we go as people, we bring wickedness with us. Here in this passage, it's, it's described as the heart of men is described as every in- intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do, do you hear like the superlative, the, the, the great expression here? Every, all, only continually. When you read the Bible, especially in the narrative sections, it's a story. So pay attention for the story clues. The cues. Pay attention for what's what is emphasized here. And what is emphasized here? It's really bad. There is no space for righteousness or justice, only evil. And does that not still describe our world today? What is the epitome here in this in this section of what is wrong? It's violence. Yes, there's lots of wickedness, but what is specifically mentioned? Violence. And in our world today, how hard is it to find violence? Not hard. You turn on the TV. You turn on your phone. You read a book. Do anything. It's easy to find violence. You know, sadly, and this is the reality of our world, it's always been happening, but you can go on social media and you can find videos of real life of people being killed in real time. And you can watch it over and over and over again, or as many as you'd like. Violence, just like back then, as epitomized, it shows, it demonstrates the great wickedness of the world, just like back then. And God's heart here is also described. So we see that the heart of men is described. It's every intent is evil only, continually. It's wicked, it's corrupt. But how is God's heart described in response? In verse 6, 7. God says, so I will destroy man whom I have created, both man and beast, for I am sorry that I have made them. Go back in verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. God is grieved. The word here, sorry, is like deeply pained. That's what it means. That deep grief that you feel in your bones. Now, we know from Scripture that, and must affirm, that God is not like us. God is not a man who makes mistakes or is taken by surprise. That is not the sort of grief or regret that we we can uh, affirm here. Often we regret things because we realize, oh, I should have done that differently. If I had known, I would have done that differently. I do not think we can affirm, based on the rest of Scripture, that this is the same exact thing that God is feeling here. But what is displayed is God's personal involvement and care for his creation. We often think of God as distant, as absent, far away. Yet think about Genesis. How is God described? Is he described as someone who's distant, far away, not paying attention? From the beginning, how has he created Adam? It's described with his hands and his breath. What happens when Adam and Eve sin? How, and God shows up. What is he doing? He's walking in the garden with them. Even Cain. Cain is sinning. He's about to murder his brother. And who appears to him? God. Speaking personally. And here again, we see God's personal care and involvement. He's not a distant, uncaring force or impersonal being. God is deeply involved in this world. The corruption and destruction of his creation matters to him. God saw the corruption. Remember back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what did God, what did God see his creation? God saw, God saw, God saw, and it was good. Yet here God sees, and what does he see? Not goodness, but overwhelming evil. 
and destruction. Now, we also know God is not controlled by overwhelming emotions like we are. Sometimes we feel emotions so deeply that we do things out of character or maybe within our character. You know, It's actually who we are inside. But sometimes we're so moved by emotions, we do things that we didn't mean to do. And we know that God is not like that. God is not controlled by his emotions, but he does have feeling in scripture. He has a motive, but he is always still actively in control of his purposes and actions. He's not passive, but he's also not far away or unable to act. He's never paralyzed by his emotions, but instead he is decisive. Furthermore, his actions always align with his character and promise. God never acts, quote, out of control. We, we, we can never correctly say, that's not like God. Usually it's our knowledge of God that is wrong. God always acts within his character. God is not like us, but that does not diminish his sincere involvement with the world he created. And now we see God acting on this grief, this sorrow. What does he do? He promises to act to reset this world, to rinse it clean, to wash all this wickedness away and begin again. Judgment on evil is assured. Though God may not act immediately, think of how long this has been. If you add up the timelines of the people in Genesis chapter 5, I got a number about 1,600 years. And there may be gaps, that's not a strict number, but at least 1,000, 1,500 years if not more. That's how long God has waited since Adam and Eve were sent. He's been waiting. Not because he couldn't act, but because he has chosen to wait. Yet now, judgment is here. Justice will be done on God's timing. His anger and wrath are just responses to mankind's evil, right? Mankind had filled the world with corrupt wickedness. It is a response to injustice and to unrighteousness. God is not angry for anger's sake. He acts because of evil. And what does he say? Quote, I will destroy man from the face of the earth and not even mankind, but even the animal life. Yet... At the end of these verses, yet, but Noah found grace. This idea of found grace is the idiom, the expression is he found favor in the eyes of. And Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And you can imagine, it's almost as if God is looking out over the world and he sees wickedness, right? Then we see God saw. God sees corruption and corruption and violence and destruction and evil. And all of a sudden, he sees Noah. And there is at least one person who is not like that, who is walking with God. Noah is described as righteous, blameless. And we know that God sees everything, but you can feel the, the story here. God is looking and looking and looking, and he sees one who is walking with him, and he has favor on him because it makes him feel good. A righteous and a just man who walks with God. You can almost imagine his eyes light up. That's kind of the way that the story is telling it. God's eyes light up with seeing this righteous man, Noah. And so God extends the grace of salvation, deliverance from the coming judgment. So what do we see? First, that God promises judgment and salvation. Let's read chap uh, chapter 6, verse 9 through 22. This is the genealogy of Noah. If you've been paying attention to Pastor Ryan, you know the genealogy. Start of another section. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked 
with God. And again, if we're reading the story, you say, wait a minute, didn't we just read about someone who walked with God? Enoch, right? Just pay attention. You're like, oh, it's, it's come back. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, cover it in the inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. And you shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with the lower and second and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of the flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of the food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to, the, to the, what God had commanded him. So he did. And we see this great contrast at the beginning of this story here. What is the earth? Corrupt, corrupt, corrupted. Notice the three, the three times. Corrupt, corrupt, corrupted. Back at the end, of chapter, in the end of that last section. But what is Noah? Three things. Just, righteous, meaning blameless, and walked with God. This is the comparison. Evil, the wicked, evil world, and just, righteous Noah. And so God promises judgment. And what do we see about God's judgment here in this passage? God promises. This is the section of promise. God's telling Noah, this is what's going to happen. First, we see that God's judgment is total and all-encompassing. Look at verse 13 of chapter 6 and verse 17. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh. And the earth is filled with violence, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Look at verse 17. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy them under heaven. All flesh, which is the breath of life, everything that is on the earth shall die. This is the complete and utter destruction of humanity and animal life. We first believe this is true because God's word teaches it. Now, if you go and read about Noah's the flood or archaeology or biblical people who have uh, scholarly criticisms of the Bible, you'll read a lot of people who make arguments that this is not a worldwide flood. Perhaps this was a local flood that the Jews then turned into a mythology, that sort of thing. But if we affirm, in which we do, we affirm that this is God's word, there is no room for a local flood here. This is worldwide total destruction. Why would the ark be needed for a local flood? God, God, Noah has maybe up to 100 years to build the ark. It's unclear, but up to maybe 100 years. Couldn't have God told Noah to leave and just go somewhere else? Why bring animals like birds at all? Couldn't they migrate? Why would he even need an ark at all? Uh, I'm not going to spend the time to go through this because we here believe that God's word is inspired. 
And I hope that you agree with me and affirm that this is what God's word teaches. If you want to get into the apologetics and the evidence side of this, there is a lot out there. Uh, organizations like Answers in Genesis has done, have done great work. There are others. And if you would like to study that more, I'm going to point you in that direction. If you look in the bulletin today on Faith Life, there is actually a link if you would like to go look at that. But this is total and utter destruction, all-encompassing. What else do we see about God's judgment? Well, it's just, meaning it's righteous. Look at verse 11, 12, 13, and 17. This is one of these things that's a little harder to see, but once you notice it, it's really cool. I think it's cool. Verse 11, the earth was also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, indeed it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Okay, so we're thinking, we're reading the story. When in a story, someone repeats something, it's important. So what's the repeated word here? Corrupt. Look at verse 13. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That word destroy is the same word as corrupt. It's corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. And God says, you're corrupt, you're corrupt, you're corrupt. Well, I'm going to corrupt you. Destroy is, is a fine translation. It means that's what it means. He's going to destroy them. But in the story, he's saying this is corruption for corruption. Look at verse 17. Same thing. I am bringing the floodwaters on the earth to destroy. Again, the same word. And here in these verses, I don't know if you can read that, but you can see it later if you'd like. You have in verses 11 and 12, corrupt, corrupt, corrupted. And then you have destroy and destroy, which are from the same word, corrupt. And I think this is what the, what the author here, under inspiration of God, is saying. This is just. This is corruption for corruption. Destruction for the ones who are destroying God's world. This is not God acting out of turn. This is God acting rightly. What does Galatians 6, 7 say? Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And God had waited a long time, but now it's time for these, the humanity, the human beings, to reap what they have been sowing, to harvest what they have planted, corruption and destruction. So we see that God's judgment is total and all-encompassing and also just. Yet, what do we see about God's salvation? God's salvation is gracious and special. Look at verse 18 through 21. I, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all the flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark, of birds and of animals and of creeping things. They shall be kept alive. This deliverance is effected through God's gracious communication and relationship with Noah. Though Noah, we have seen, was indeed righteous and loved God, God was under no compulsion to do this, but God gives grace. God could have remained silent. Does God need to tell anybody on earth what his plans are? Yet he chooses to speak to Noah and give him salvation. Even God's communication of coming judgment is grace because it is an opportunity for salvation. God graciously, God graciously extends this special covenant. I'll give you another hint. When you're reading the Old Testament, covenant's kind of an important word. So when you see covenant, you're like, oh, mark that. That's important. What is a covenant? It is a special relationship with God, where God demands obedience, but also gives blessing and life. 
Because of God, through Noah, life continues on earth. Because of Noah, God's image bearers lived on. Because of Noah, you and I sit here today. This is the blessing of a special covenant relationship with God. Life, deliverance, and honor. We're still talking about Noah thousands of years later because God extended this relationship and Noah listened in faith. It's special and gracious, but it's also just. Look at verse 6, 9, and 7, 1. How is Noah described? How is Noah described? Just, perfect, which is righteous, blameless, and walked with God. This is salvation for the righteous. This is deliverance for the blameless and obedience. Obedience. Can, can anybody look at the story and say, Noah didn't deserve that? Noah's the only person who's walking with God that we know of. God's salvation is just. It's right, just as his judgment is right. And God, God promises rescue for, his, for Noah and his family, and ultimately all humanity, even the animal world, through this ark. An ark, really, the word here, it doesn't mean boat as much as it means ark, like we think of it, like the ark of the covenant. A chest to store precious cargo. This is the future of the world. This bears God's promise to Adam and Eve. Remember what did God promise them? A seed that would rise up to crush the serpent. And God says, I'm saving that promise here. And this, uh, the ark, the dimensions are really incredible, yet realistic, as we would expect. Uh, if you ever read about the flood, once again, you will see that a lot of people claim that the flood account is just stolen from other pagan myths. And you know what? In many, many cultures, there are flood stories, flood mythology. Uh, Answers in Genesis, again, counts up to 200, if not more, stories from independent cultures and people groups in different languages about a worldwide or giant flood. And again, many critics say the Bible's just stealing from that. The Jews just stole that story. But once again, we see that does, does not match. For instance, one of the most famous stories is a Babylonian story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And in this mythic story, one of the gods, Ea, commands Utnapishtim. I got through that one, so that was good. You thought the Old Testament names were, were bad. Try the Babylonian names. Utnapishtim. Ea, one of their pagan gods, comes to him and says, build a vessel to survive this flood that's coming because Enlil, another god, is angry and he wants to destroy you. Yet that description of what the vessel that this god Aeus tells in the story of Gilgamesh, what to build, it doesn't really make sense. In that story, he tells them to build a 120 cubit square cube. A cubit is uh, an arm's length up from elbow to, to finger. That's about how they measured things, kind of universal measurement. And in the, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, this vessel is a cube. That's 120 cubit square. Well, I think all of us can look at that and say, well, that doesn't, how's that going to float? turnover. The description doesn't make sense. Yet, this ark does. 450 feet, 75 feet by 45 feet. And we don't know what it looks like, but this is, if you ever know, this is the ark encounter in Kentucky. And though this, we don't know for sure this is what it looks like, this is a great illustration of the size and a potential uh, design that people have come up with. But this is a viable vessel. These dimensions could work in real life because it did. And often Noah's Ark becomes the main focus of any story or instruction from these chapters. And while it is important because it's very interesting to us, uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about the dimensions of the Ark and the pitch. Summary, what is it? 
The ark was a real vessel, which God divinely designed and was built by Noah. It was successfully carried Noah, his family, and the animals of earth to safety through the flood. And if you are interested, you can study this on your own. There's great resources. This is the promise of judgment and salvation. And we get to chapter 7, and here the judgment comes. Genesis 7, 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, and you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven of each of every clean animal, and a male and his female, two of each animal that are unclean, and a male and a female, also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. So far, Noah has believed God. The ark is now built. He has prepared for God's judgment by acting on this promise of salvation. And now the time has come. Again, we look at it and say, of course the flood's coming. you got to imagine this has been maybe up to 100 years from the end of chapter 5. It says Noah was 500 years, and then later in this chapter it says Noah is 600 years. Somewhere in that 100 years, God appears to Noah and says, build this ark, and Noah does. But remember, nothing like this has ever happened. Nothing like rain or a flood has ever taken place on the earth. And it's been at least 1,500 years since Adam and Eve. And yet God had promised. So we come to this chapter, this verses, and God says, get in the ark. And this is the test of Noah's faith. You can imagine maybe what Noah and others he told about this promise might have thought. Things that people think today. Quote, for instance, we might, they might have thought, God does not care about what we do here on earth. Or God set the world in motion, but he won't return to do anything else with us. Or even... If God were real, wouldn't he have already done something? Or perhaps, even like in our day, they doubted the very existence of God. It's very possible they were atheists, even in Noah's day. This is the test of faith. God says, get in the ark. Because God commands Noah and his family to enter the ark, he has promised judgment, and Noah chooses to believe and have faith. Verse 5. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark, male and female, as God commanded. God is always right. His promise for salvation and judgment will always come to pass. It wasn't say in verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the earth were broken up deep, were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. The, the earth is splitting apart to allow water to come up, and the sky is opening up to let water come down. Look at verses 17 through 23 of chapter 7. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. 
the waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And they prevailed greatly and increased on the earth. And the ark moved about the, on the surface of the water. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth. And all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward, the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things and birds of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. God's judgment is sure. God had promised, and so it happened. Just like God's salvation is Sure. God's judgment happened. God's salvation happened. I want you to know, look in verse 4 and verse 23. There's two interesting words here. Verse 4 of chapter 7 and verse 23. Verse 4. For after seven more days, God speaking, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth. Look at verse 23. So the face of the uh, so he destroyed all living things which are on the face of the ground. These words are different words for destroy than earlier. Earlier we saw the words corrupted to destroy by corrupting to get rid of. Here these words are the words for to wipe clean. You might see it in other parts of the Bible to blot out. God comes along with this flood and he says, you know what? There is so much evil and corruption and wickedness with this flood. I'm going to take my judgment. I'm going to wipe the earth clean. It reminds me, when I was in college, I worked in a, in a kitchen there at IBCS in the cafeteria. A lot of fun sometimes. Uh, it's a very great experience. But in the, in the kitchen, if you've ever been in an industrial kitchen, you ever seen one of those sprayers that like comes down from the ceiling? It's like on a big tube, and it's got a big sprayer on the end. And it's like high pressure. It's like so you can get plates, and you can get dishes, and you don't even have to like touch them. It's not like a little sink. It's like a jet spray. You know, and you would just get the dishes and, you know, you need to get the food off and then sanitize them. And so to get all this stuff off, almost everything could be got, gotten off really easily. You just grab that and you just take that spray and go, Shh, and like, Shh, and it's gone. It's like a pressure washer. Your pressure washer just takes everything right off. This was the kitchen version, the kitchen pressure washer. That's what I think of here. It's like God takes the earth, which is full of evil and gross corruption and violence. And he just says, I'm just wiping it clean. Only Noah survived. To remove so fully that no sign was left, nothing remained. God's judgment is total and all-encompassing. It is like God takes that dish and it's clean. It's new. It's cleansed. Because all that wickedness and all those that corruption has been destroyed. God's judgment is total, all-encompassing, just and sure but so is God's salvation. Who was left? Only Noah. And those who were with him in the ark remained. Just like God's judgment, God's salvation is also gracious, special. It is just. Remember, who is Noah? He's the righteous one. He's the just one. He's the one who walked with God, and it is sure. There was never a chance that the ark would be destroyed because God guaranteed it. So what does this matter to you today? 
Why should you care about the flood that happened thousands of years ago? Because while the flood has long since gone behind us, there is another judgment coming. Not one of water. God later promises, I will not ever destroy the world with water again. Not a judgment of water, but of fire. And not a physical wave, which will sweep the world into physical death, but an eternal command, which will doom the world to eternal destruction in a lake which burns with fire forever. You and I, we still live today with that corruption that Noah's generation had. We think it's, you know, it's almost in a great story, like, wow, God has cleansed the world. He's renewed it. He started over again with Noah. Wow, God gives him the promise. He puts the rainbow in the sky. And we'll talk about this next week. Puts the rainbow in the sky. And you're like, wow, things are going great. And what happens right away? Noah's son shamefully uncovers him, sees him in an undignified context. Noah is drunk, and Noah's son is cursed. Like, okay, well, that renewal didn't go so great. <laughs> there is a judgment, though, coming. Because we, you and I, still bear that corruption in our souls, in our hearts. As we said earlier, is not the world filled with violence? What is it that we see on TV, on social media, on any video streaming site? The glorification of violence? Where those who are violent are praised, put up as heroes? Don't we still see the song of Lamech? We hear that song. What does Lamech say? He's boasting of revenge and of murder for a slight offense. What about read about rebellion against God? Don't we still see the heart of Adam and Eve in our world today of Cain? Does our world submit to its creator and worship God, or do we worship ourselves and follow the wisdom of that same serpent from the garden? The pessimists among you are vindicated. Yes, the world's a terrible place. Isn't Genesis 6-5 still accurate? Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you ever feel that? You live in this world and you just think everything is corrupt. Everything is sin. Everything is evil. Everyone does wickedness. That's correct. What about the corruption of our world? Does humanity bring order and flourishing and growth wherever we go? We just build utopias wherever we exist on this planet. Uh, a lot of people here are saying, you know what? I like to go where nobody lives because that's still better, <laughs> you know, than where people are. Or do we bring death, destruction, and corruption wherever we find ourselves? Mankind's problem is not outside itself. It's not someone else that is your greatest problem. It is the greatest problem is one we bring with us because it is in our own hearts. And each and every one of us naturally is in rebellion to God. No, you may not be a murderer, but have you ever hated another? What did Jesus say about hate? Already committed murder in your heart. And if you say, well, I don't know if I see a lot of murder around me. Do you see a lot of hate? Do we feel it in our own hearts? You may not worship a literal idol. You might not have a statue in your house of gold or wood. But do we not worship the idol of ourselves, of our own desires over what God wants? The Bible makes it clear that the world is still as corrupt as it was in the days of Noah. What does Romans 3 say? 
quoting the Psalms. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks. Everybody are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps, of vipers, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You say, wow, that sounds like we could have written that about Noah's day and about our day. This wickedness deserves God's judgment, just as the men of Noah's day deserve judgment. And that judgment is total and all-encompassing. It's just, and it's sure. This judgment is coming. It has been pronounced, and we are now just waiting for the return of Jesus, who brings this judgment with him. Listen to what Jesus says. This is in Matthew 24. Verse 36 and 39 to 39. But of that day, an hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the, will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until that day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Knowing this, First, that scoffers will come. Oh, sorry, I skipped. That's in Second Peter, but let's read it. Second Peter 3. Knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last day, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, they willingly forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works which are in them will be burned up. God's judgment is promised, and you must believe it. In Matthew 25, Jesus says again, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, they will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king, Jesus, will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. But those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And those these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This judgment is coming. It is just. 
It is righteous because of my own wickedness and your own wickedness. It is sure because God's promise, just like the flood, is bound to come to pass. Do not think that because God has been mercifully patient that he has forgotten. As we just read in 2 Peter, it will come like a thief in the night. And there will be people who say, well, it's not happened yet. It's not going to happen. But we also must believe God's promise. Believe God's promised judgment. But just as there is a coming judgment, there is another salvation. You know, there is another man who is found in the sight of God, just and righteous and blameless. There was another man who found favor in the eyes of God. One who the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There was another man who brought salvation through his obedience on an ark made of wood on a cross. Jesus. Noah saved the world and his family and all of animal kind because God offered salvation because he was just and righteous. God offered physical salvation. But you and I could never reach that standard of righteousness to earn spiritual eternal salvation. Then praise be to God because there is one who perfectly obeyed God who never sinned, who is truly righteous. Jesus lived the perfect life that you never could. Jesus died the death that we deserve and took that coming judgment. Jesus already faced death. He was laid in the cold stone tomb and declared victory in rising from the grave. Jesus offers you salvation through the cross, another instrument of salvation made of wood. You can enter freely by faith. You must only repent of your sin and trust and have faith in Christ. Trust in him for salvation. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In Genesis, what did we see? God wiped clean the world by destroying wickedness and evil men. This is what we all deserve. This is what you deserve. This is what I deserve to be destroyed, to be wiped away, to be blotted out. But those words are used somewhere else in the Bible. The psalmist David understood. Psalm 51, after his own sin, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's the same words. Where God blotted out wickedness and destroyed them in judgment, God now offers that instead of wiping you away, can wipe you clean. Instead of wiping you away with the wicked, God can wipe your wickedness away from you. He offers cleansing. And while we deserve to be wiped away, God through Jesus offers cleansing through the waters of mercy. Instead of being wiped away because of our wickedness, we can be wiped clean and left with the clean robes of righteousness that Jesus has bought through his obedience. What does 1 Corinthians 6 say, 9 through 11? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? But such were some of you, but now you are washed. But now you are sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. If you repent and you believe, you confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, you can be wiped clean. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says that if you confess with your mouth 
the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In verse 13, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It takes faith. And what does faith look like? Action. Did Noah demonstrate faith in building the ark? Yes. But can you imagine if we got to chapter 7 and God says, Noah, it's time to get in the ark. You built it. It's awesome. It looks beautiful. It's ready. Noah, time to get in. And Noah said, oh, I believe you, God, that judgment's coming. But uh, I'm just going to stay out here. Oh, it looks great, God. But I mean, I believe you. But I'm just going to stay out here. I think I'm good here. Thanks. Noah's faith meant he got in the ark. And God commands us today to have faith in Christ by entering the ark of Jesus. Faith means belief and trust. And belief and trust means action. How many people have you heard, and even maybe some of you here today, say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I believe in the Bible, but have not acted to truly put, to return from everything and trust in him. You may think that the cost of trusting in Jesus is too high. You may think that you have time. You may think that you can do it later. The cost is not too high. It is too high to not trust in Christ. You do not know the day or the hour. What did we see? It is like a thief in the night. Now is the day of salvation. If you have not repented of your sin, being willing to leave it all behind and trust only in Christ, do so today. What did we see about judgment? It's total and all-encompassing. What is salvation? It's narrow and special. And what did Jesus say? <sighs> Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go into it. But few there be ones who find the narrow path of righteousness in life. Come into the ark of Christ. Enter today. Do not stand outside waiting. The ark's been built. It's ready. The door stands open. The flood is coming. Enter today. Perhaps you are a Christian here today, but you have been harboring sin or rebellion against God in your life. You know it's wrong and you've chosen to not rid yourself of it, to not turn from it. Do not be deceived. The path of man's wisdom, the path of the serpent, the path of Cain, the path of Lamech leads only to destruction. If you are truly a child of God, then sin will bring only great heartache and discipline because God will not allow you to follow that path forever. Whom God loves, he disciplines, he rebukes. Repent now and return to the God's loving arms of mercy. Do not follow the path of sin and destruction. Perhaps you are here today and you are struggling with doubt. You, you say, I've trusted Christ. I trust Christ today. I've repented. But you worry that God has maybe forgotten you. Consider Noah at the end of our story today. We haven't gone to chapter 8 yet. What happens at the end of chapter 7? The world is destroyed. Everything Noah has known and everyone Noah ever knew outside his family is gone. He's experienced the greatest cataclysm in history. And he's stuck in this dark, wet, dank, probably claustrophobic, probably didn't smell great, ark for almost six months. Do you think he had doubts? Do you think that he wondered if God had forgotten him? Do you think he wondered if there would be a world left for him after the flood? But God's promise, promise of deliverance is just as sure as his promise of judgment. 
Just as God was pleased when he looked at Noah, God is pleased when he looks at you in Christ. It is not your own righteousness. It is not your own blamelessness that finds favor in the eyes of God. It is the righteousness of Jesus. God has not forgotten you. He remembers. You may feel like you're stuck in the ark right now, in the middle of a flood, but God is working. His promise is sure. His blessing and salvation are sure. Continue to believe and trust as you once did. And if you want to spoil next week's message, the first verse of chapter 8, then God remembered Noah. Have you entered the ark of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? Or are you still outside waiting for the rain to start? Has your wickedness been wiped away, or will you be wiped away when judgment comes? Believe God's promise of judgment. Believe God's promise of salvation. Father, thank you for